Grandma's Petticoat. Grandma Elsa's petticoat is the nearest thing our family owns to an heirloom. Every year, on the 19th of March, it gets brought out from the back of her closet, taken off the crocheted padded hanger, which is kept inside a drawstring bag, and carefully inspected by all the Brisbane relatives. It only ever comes out on her birthday, like today, when we pay respect to Grandma Elsa, the matriarch of our family, for at the same time, we maintain our bonds of kinship. Grandma was up early this morning. It takes a good deal of time for her to get dressed nowadays, and although she wouldn't admit it, she is excited. Ah, what's to be excited about? I'm getting older, so be it. I am also getting wiser. It is her favourite expression these days, and like all such sayings, holds a modicum of truth. But Grandma adds a little more. It was your grandfather had the wisdom. Didn't he know this land would be good for our family when everybody said we should go to America? America. Ha! Even so, every morning she takes time from dressing to look out of the big bay window of her room to watch the small craft negotiating the winding twists and turns of the Brisbane River. She loves that river and confirms and condemns everything on it according to her mood. This is usually governed by her arthritis, which we all know pains her cruelly. The joggers on the river attract her first comments. Such energy wasted. Why don't they go home? Why don't they go home and cook a good, wholesome breakfast for their family, huh? Then there would be less crime in the world. Her logic is entirely subjective and we do not question it. Then, as her gaze moves on, she will condemn the mammoth contraption that links the two sides of the river. What ugliness is that, I ask you? The engineers should be sent to Europe to see how bridges should be built. Yet at night, when hundreds of lights turn the same bridge into a glittering beacon and her body is free from pain, she stares in wonder. What a sight, what a sight. So clever to make such a thing of beauty. She rarely leaves the house these days, or her room for that matter, preferring to sit and crochet exquisite coat hanger covers that will lie unloved on countless bring-and-buy stalls. And what reason would I have to go out? Is there anything I haven't seen already? She asks when invited on an outing. In fact, there is much in recent years she hasn't seen, for Brisbane is growing so fast. Roads replacing footpaths, shopping malls on vacant corners, unit blocks rising like phoenix from the ashes of old family homes. But there is another reason Grandma refuses to leave the house. It is fear. I saw it in her eyes a few months ago when I walked with her down towards the Sydney Street Ferry. The last time, perhaps, she took such a trip. We walked past the new extensions of the aged care home and glimpsed some of the people inside. Their eyes were vacant and their limbs heavy as they manoeuvred walking frames and wheelchairs, dependent on strangers to provide simple tasks and courtesies to get them through each day. Grandma saw them and shook her head sadly. So, where is the family? Where is the respect? I ask you. But she knows if she should fall, break a limb, perhaps, there would be little option than for mother and father to send her there, away from her beloved home. Aged care? No, no, not for Grandma Elsa. 
so she confines herself to her room and patrols it daily to examine the treasures that adorn the shelves and walls so that she may relive the moment of their acquisition and so relive her life. Photographs are abundant, as are souvenirs, bric-a-brac, and gifts from children, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren. They are inspected, handled, and discussed often. Look, look at the photograph of Katrina's new little one. Ah, she has her grandfather's eyes. See? See the workmanship on this leather wallet? Now, my grandson Thomas made that for me. Now that is fine work to be admired. Skills he inherited from his grandfather? Grandma has been a widow for nearly 20 years, and although her mind is still sharp, she often likes to talk, as if Grandpa Izzy were still beside her. Ah, I remember when you made that mirror, Izzy. Such a time you took. Noah could build the ark quicker. And what vanity did you think I had to look at myself all day, huh? Grandma Elsa and Grandpa Izzy had already been married a number of years and had travelled widely when they first came to live in this old house in Moray Street. They had met in London and become young lovers united against the anti-Semitism that pervaded England during the war years. Then, as a married couple, they had joined the throng of eager hopefuls who were making their way toward the newly formed state of Israel. Life was hard in the kibbutz, with two sons born and two sons lost, before the decision made to emigrate to Australia, another land full of even more hope and promise. She often talks wistfully of the long-forgotten idea to install the state of Israel in Australia, up in the Kimberleys. And now Father joins a discussion, shaking his head. Elsa, Elsa, don't you see? It would never have worked. We are not farmers. Our people do not do well on the land. You and Izzy were the city people, and as city folk, you did well. But as farmers, hmm. And in this he is right. They had endured much hardship before doing well. As refugees, they had first set up home in Melbourne, in a suburb full of variants from other lands, who gradually embraced an Islamic culture endemic to their needs. But these were not the needs of the young Isidore and Elsa, who decided to move on, this time to Sydney. A new drapery business venture was begun and thrived, as did the new children, three born in as many years. Good times, bad times, moving, packing, birthing and occasionally burying. It would be a few more years before finally, with their young family now numbering six, they sought the warmth of Queensland, where they tried their hand at living on a small property out at Roma. That's where Uncle Ben was born. As related by father, the farming venture was not a success. Nor was Uncle Ben, who ate non-kosher food, refused to observe Shabbat, and eventually disappeared off to America to begin his own dynasty. Sharon, God go with him. The family have not heard much of him and seen less, but they wish him well. Bench. Grandpa Azador worked hard to forge himself a place in the newly expanding import and export markets of the 70s. He brought in exquisite garments and lace from the Middle East to an otherwise austere Australian marketplace and shipped out wools and cottons, yet to be processed and returned as cloth. Mm, ah, the life was good and full says Grandma. We were blessed. It is nearly 8am and Grandma is finally dressed. Not in her best, that is for later, when she will change for the party. Here, Bubele, I've brought your breakfast. 
mother herself, well gone 60, calls out as she knocks on grandma's door, setting down a small tray. Eat, eat, before it gets cold. She and father came to live here with grandma and grandpa 30 years ago, when there was a housing shortage. A new floor was put atop the existing two levels for mother and father, and my two brothers and sisters. Then, as the years went on, workloads and finances changed. Father got a promotion in the tax office, and grandpa worked less in the drapery business. So, a gradual transference began in the extended family, until the Miskchapakuta family tumble-turned, and the old family were considered to live with them. Grandma Elsa took it all in her stride as she shrugged her shoulders. What difference is it as to who lives with whom, so long as we all live together? A house should be like a petticoat, ready to adapt to any size. Grandma's petticoat is certainly like that, and we will examine it in more detail later. Right now, she has nibbled at her breakfast and begins to wander around her room, gathering together the memorabilia she needs for the afternoon. The petticoat, of course, but that will be taken out later. Photographs, too, especially the one of her and Grandpa Izzy on their wedding day. She will look long at this, kissing his celluloid stern features and murmuring, Aleyava Shalom, peace be with him. Today, being special, she spends even more time talking to him as if he was still beside her. Ah, my Izzy, such a handsome man you were. So proud I was to stand beside you as your bride. The weather is kind to her old bones today, so she is of sweet spirit and does not add as so often follows. And what a good thing it was me you chose, and not that Rebecca Goldstein, who never learnt to cook and could only produce daughters. There are more photographs stored carefully in big, thick albums. As the youngest granddaughter, it will be my job to carry them, so I will have to wear flat shoes, for they are heavy, and experience tells me I could easily drop them if they are not given due care. Grandma sees this and is quick to reprimand. Careful, child. Those books cannot be replaced, nor can the memories they house. I'm not sure if I like being referred to as a child. I am 35 and have two children of my own. But I will forgive her if she is churlish today, for she has much to say and do. We will spend the day talking of her old days. Yes, these we have heard a hundred times already, and expect to hear a hundred more. She has begun one now, and her voice is dry with age. I walked into this empty house with six mench already, and your mother on the way. The house spoke to me and said, Laheim, Elsa, your worries and thuris are over. Now we are home. And this I knew to be true, so I said to Grandpa, We will not move again. She goes on to say how there was no midwife present when mother was born, a little contemptuous of such a notion. No money and no need. What was there about birthing I did not know. Six born and living. And two, back in God's care, Lockheim. She will often point her finger at mother, shaking it back and forth as she says, And you, my little Sarah, you were my last. For sometimes a woman must put on the pants to make sure her man... Keeps his own pants on. <laughs> she cackles at her own joke and is quick to explain her meaning, for with the new baby suckling at her breast, she says, she looked at Grandpa firmly. Enough children already, she told him. Thus would Grandpa's conjugal rights limited to whenever it was 
a suitable day for loving. She tells a good tale, Mother smiles, and I will tell you another. She then begins to tell of the day Grandpa got into a fight with the two sisters who ran the Queen Adelaide in James Street. Looking at Grandma with a mischievous smile, she asks, Don't you remember, Boobé? Papa had too much red wine and began to sing and dance on the tables. My Izzy? Never. What foolishness are you speaking now, girl? Grandma rebukes her with a frown, although there is a glint in her eye, for she enjoys the repartee. It is you that speak the Boobé, Moussa, the fancy story. Surely you also remember Boobélé, mother will taunt, when old man Goldstein came from the jewellers and tried to give you a bad price on your pendant. Ah, yes. That Goldstein was a gonif, a thief, a crook. He deserved the beating Izzy gave him, and should be grateful he did not beat him more. But the police came and put Papa in the watch house. You remember, Boobé? Watch house? Never. Your mind is playing you tricks. But Mother continues her story, and my ears flap. Grandpa is a door, drunk and disorderly, and in jail? This is new. Like most children, I used to find the old stories boring. But once I became a stay-at-home mother, I would bring my daughter over to share fragrant lemon tea and hot kugels straight from the oven. Grandma's stories and mother's have been told so often they are intermingled with each other's, as well as a fable from other families. But no matter, they are good for listening on a cold winter afternoon. Grandma is getting dressed formally now, so mother and I go into the lounge room to prepare. Chairs are brought in and put around the room. The drought has taken toll in the garden, but a few fresh flowers may be brought in, as small posies to waft their scents around the large airy rooms. Outside in the street, we see the people walking by, and Mother takes a moment to reminisce. When I was a young girl, in the early 60s, this street was full of Jews. In fact, it was known as Jewtown. Friday afternoon would see us scurrying home after shopping or work to prepare for Shabbat. She looks over to Father, who is bringing in yet another chair, and he nods his head. Could you imagine a young boy walking the streets nowadays in his yamulka? he asks, and together they laugh at such a preposterous idea. I remember it well, Mother joins in. Twice a week we would meet as we went to the Inman for instruction, with handwritten copies from the Torah clutched in our hands. Ah, and your grandpa and I would have to penny pinch to pay him, Grandma interrupts, glaring at Mother as she comes in to supervise. Apparently Mother did not glean her money's worth from the imminent scholar, although she saw much of Papa. They talk of many things I already know, of how the Jews gradually began to move away and Italians moved in, then Greek families and then Asians. They talk of buildings that have been reconstructed or rebuilt, or the cinemas that have come and gone, like the old Rivoli, which is now a shopping mart, or the old Merthyr Picture Palace, which has survived five name changes. Mother went there with father when it was the Astor. I knew it as the village twin. We argue the name and its merits at each era. I hear it is to be demolished, says mother, shaking her head. No, no, merely reconstructed, I say. No matter, says mother. Either way, it will be changed. Now their stories merge with mine. The buildings that are there, no more. The people passed on. The rituals forgotten. The cultures mixed and woven into a new fabric, all into the cloth of the emerging Australia. Coming from such different lands, did you all understand each other? Did you all get on? I venture to ask, thinking of the recent gang riots in Sydney and Melbourne. 
My three forebears shrug. We were all foreigners. If we didn't, we would be told, and rightly so, you don't like it here? Go back from where you came. And we couldn't do that. So we got on with each other and became friends. For what else could be done? This was our new Eretz, our homeland. I think of this as I go off to help Mother prepare lunch. Coffee and cheese and Vegemite sandwiches for us and a bowl of corinth for Grandma. Through the kitchen window I see a huge crane lifting earth and rocks from yet another vacant block across the road. The Catania family moved out six months ago and their house is to be replaced by four luxurious townhouses with extensive city views. I switch on the radio for music, but the jackhammering makes it difficult to hear. I look around me at the kitchen that has witnessed so many meals, squabbles and hopes and dreams of people I love, for this is a problem I must face soon. Three generations of my family have called this house in Moray Street home. We have roamed the new farm streets, known to us as Merthyr Village, met and befriended Dinkum Dye Ozzies, but have we seen it all with different eyes? Mother walks into the kitchen and knows my thoughts. Her hand covers mine. You must do what is right for your family, Anna, as we did for ours. I nod my head. I know this to be true, but have a heavy heart. Nowadays, houses such as this take a good deal of money to first renovate to modern needs and later to maintain. I do not want to be a slave to a house that would enforce me to be a working mother, and yet... Mother and I eat and talk of Grandma's memories and laugh and joke as through the door we hear her mutter her appreciation of the stew. Ah, that is so good. That recipe has been with us since Abraham was a boy. What is it with this Vegemite? Vegemite, what can that compare, huh? We are still smiling as we return after lunch, quiet, so as not to disturb her if she is sleeping. But we stop as we see her sitting quietly in her old armchair, tears on her withered cheeks. She has switched on the television for the news. We have been too busy to think of it and stand a moment to share the wonders of technology that bring the daily world to us in this tree-lined street. But today the world stage is not one we wish to be part of, or no. Unfolding before us are the scenes we first saw years ago, anniversary scenes of the invasion of Iraq, the ships of war, the tanks, the planes, all bigger and more efficient and capable of a level of destruction never known before. Today the camera takes us to see that destruction, the rubble, the broken buildings, the broken limbs and broken lives, the result of years of misery. And we silently ask, Dear God, will it ever end? The old lady's eyes are still moist as she mutters quietly to herself once more. Ah, we are all growing older, but hmm, not wiser. And we nod our heads for what else is there to say? It is three o'clock. Children are coming home from school and soon our guests will be arriving. Grandma is standing before the mirror now. She is adjusting her hair, putting it in place with a beautiful tortoiseshell comb that I have always envied. It will be yours one day, Babushka, Grandma whispers, and I am sad. I do not want it to be mine after she is gone. It is time to take down the petticoat now. That is Mother's role. She takes it from the cupboard still in its muslin sheath. Careful, Sarah, careful now. Grandma admonishes and Mother's irritation responds. I am being careful, Boubelet, and the petticoat is not fragile. And would it have lasted this long? 
if it was not well built, asked the old lady petulantly. It is made of calico, as they all were back then, strong enough to withstand one thousand washings. Not that this one ever had. It had a destiny far more important than to be worn as an undergarment. Grandma scoops it up now and gives it to me to follow as a bridesmaid would a bride. She is ready and takes mother's arm. Her head is held high, but her old legs are weak. According to custom, she sits in her old rocking chair in the lounge, facing the window and looks around at the children gathering on the floor before her. The matriarchs are seated in the soft chairs as befits them, us younger adults on the hard chairs, the unmarried perched on armrests or stools. The menfolk lean against the walls for support, or, like the children, take whatever space they can on the floor, resting their backs against their wives, who will often rub their backs as recognition of their chivalrous gesture. Mothers will introduce their children, or reintroduce them if they feel that grandma's memory has failed. She takes pride in remembering names and faces, although sometimes gets them a little muddled. At first they are quiet, a little awed, and stare at the garment now across her knees. Father stands before us. He clears his throat nervously and makes a toast. We bless Grandma and wish her many more birthdays. Then, as he withdraws, Grandma begins to speak in her deep, guttural voice, commanding the attention it deserves, because she is the matriarch of Chai, the life of the family. She fingers the muslin bag, and a soft look comes to her eyes as she takes out her prized possession. This petticoat belonged to my own dear mother, Kara, Alaf Haithjolong. There is an instant hush. And so Grandma begins. My family lived in Warsaw in 1939, when my mother, Kyra, was a healthy young wife and mother of three. We are now reminded that Kyra and her family were Jewish. The adult listeners sigh at this point, for we all know what this means and the hardship that is to follow. The younger ones must learn so that they too may know of the battles fought and won for them and of their ancestors who first suffered and then prospered. In much the same way as Mother has told of her youth in Brisbane, so Grandma Elsa begins with her life in Poland. As she talks, we see it as a harsh life, with few diversions from work or relief from the austerity of living. But she insists it was not. We were a happy family. We enjoyed the comforts of middle-class Jews, plenty of food, joyous music and lots of love. Her hand will go to her heart. There were no computers? And no television. And her scrawny, veined hands now embrace the luxuries around the room. But, Bubele, how did you watch the Wiggles or High Five? A little one asked solemnly. This brings laughter and a stern look from Grandma. No Wiggles, no Eigel. We practiced the piano. We sang. We played simple board games. And as girls, we did needlework. And handicrafts. So good, so fine. This is the cue, for she notes that a few of the boys are getting a little bored and a little fractious as the monologue takes shape. So Grandma pauses and takes a deep breath, thus regaining their attention. Then one day, one day the war came to our land, our city, and finally our doorstep. The Nazis took over Warsaw and changed our lives forever. Her older listeners will nod their heads knowingly. After all, the German invasion of Poland is well documented and we have all seen the stark black and white photographs which have trapped forever the horrors and torment of a city razed completely to the ground. 
It is an irony that patriotism and Judaism must always be poles apart. Grandma jokes about this time and waits for her audience to laugh. She is rarely disappointed. But then she will grow serious and tell us that it was those Jewish families who felt least for their country of birth, who saw the signs and left long before the full weight of military power descended on the Polish people. She will raise her head high and say, But our family, proudly, but foolishly, well, we stayed on at that time. And so it was, as Grandma's stories goes, that she watched her father come home one day, shake off the snow from his winter overcoat, slowly remove his hat and boots, and sit with downcast head as he faced his wife and family. Well, it's official, Kyra. All Jews must now wear armbands. And more than that, we must all move to the gutter whenever a German soldier passes by. Grandmother will then allow the story to become more personal as she describes how she, the young Elsa, listened quietly to her father's words, her heart heavy. What her father said meant little to her, but even she could see that little consideration would be given to her birthday the next day, the day she would be 13 and nearly a woman. She describes her father's sombre face as he explained even further the seriousness of the situation. And in the next few days, we will be visited by special administrators who will check that we hold no more than 2,000 Slotskis, nor anything that is valued more. Grandma Elsa quickly continues. Mother's voice rose in panic. What? 2,000 Slotskis? We can barely last a week on that. The prices are rising all the time. Why, only this morning I queued for over an hour for one loaf of bread. How could she feed a family of five, she asks, with no income to buffer the intrusion of war. The young Elsa waits for her to also complain, as she does daily, of the shoving and pushing of the starving people she must endure as she competes with the long lines of desperate people. But this time the words do not come. My parents did not discuss it openly, but we all understood that now, finally, with no other options, the family must leave. They would leave the land of their birth, their ancestors, their home, and they would go where? Grandma's voice then takes on the mimicry of her mother's voice. We hear Kyra's steely resolve as she says, Husband, go fetch my sewing machine from the attic. And Elsa, go fetch my best winter petticoat from the trunk under my bed. There is work to be done. Grandma would always wait at this point, for she was a natural-born storyteller and knew the value of making her audience think, think and wonder. For why would a sewing machine be needed when the discussion was about the rising price of food and the leaving of the homeland? The mystery will soon be unravelled, for Grandma will now pull open the muslin bag and lovingly withdraw Mother Kyra's petticoat. Her gnarled old fingers will caress the rough cambric, smoothing out the folds and make their way knowingly down to the hem. Before the eyes of the mesmerised young ones, she will turn the hem and release the fine drawstring threads, showing the small, intricate compartments sewn in one by one. See? See? Mother sewed the hem under itself. Her old voice crackles with age, excited and shrill. And here, here we stored Mother's fine ruby ring. And her audience will stretch their necks, disappointed to see that the ring is no longer there. Ah, we sold it to pay our passage to England, will be the explanation. Then her fingers move on. Here was the place for my father's gold watch, the money we used as a deposit for our first house. 
But look, look, we kept the wristband, for it was no more than leather. The next place shown had been the one reserved for the fine antique spoon that was said to once belong to the Romanovs. It had been given as a present to Grandma's mother when she had worked as a girl in the summer palace long before the royal family had been exiled and so tragically murdered. Nothing more than a small drawing by Mother Kyra is left of the elaborately styled spoon, for it had been sold to help furnish the new house. But the drawing, wrapped carefully in strong paper, may be withdrawn from its secret place and shown to curious eyes. And here, these, along with a necklace, were part of my dowry. The necklace was sold to pay for my wedding, my wedding to Grandpa Isidore in London. Knowing the need for her audience to continue to see rather than hear, Grandma's fingers will open up another small compartment to show two small pearl earrings. And here, these along with a necklace were part of my dowry. The necklace was sold to pay for my wedding, my wedding to Grandpa Isidore in London. Even though refugees, my dowry helped us set up our clothing trade so that we had no need to sell more. Not after that. Not even this small locket that houses Mother Kyra's picture. Straining eyes will take in the austere face of great-grandma Kyra, who had worked her seamstress skills so diligently. And sometimes a tear will be shed by us oldies as Grandma Elsa bestows on it a small, light kiss. She has kept the best till last. A small diamond pendant with four empty claws that should have housed four large diamonds encrusted around a glittering sapphire. She waits for the question that always comes. Why are all the stones missing, Grandma? Now she captures her audience for the final moment. They are the stones that paid for this house. Four diamonds, four little stones that would have done no more than glitter on a chain around an old lady's neck. We sold them to buy this house, a large, strong house in Australia, our home. It is a fine story. Each year it changes a little, as does the audience. Yet the anniversary ceremony never fails to have a profound effect on at least one participant. After all, we are a fecund family and never seem short of a new baby being born. The story is moving on to the happier times, with this old house once again the welcoming edifice for the family gatherings. I look for my daughter seated between her cousins, her blonde hair tussled and her eyes bright with interest. I remember too well when I was seated in the same place, listening to the same tale, no doubt thinking the same thoughts. Behind them, the Brisbane River flows as it did then. Small craft may be seen skimming across the water, Suntanned boaters enjoying the wind in their hair, the fresh breeze in their face. The old ferries will soon be replaced entirely by the speedy, more efficient catamarans, and there is worry that the tidal waves will gradually erode the shore. And on the bridge, more cars, moving more people faster and further. Around us and in the distance, cranes like giant triffids are forging new buildings, closer, denser, thrusting higher into the blue sky and above them the plains, forever bringing and taking travellers to and from distant lands. As I sit, watch and listen, I know in my heart this may well be the last time Grandma will tell her tale. Age is casting its web on her body, but it is also casting a web on her story. 
She talks of an old war. There have been many since. Einsal, without end. I see the tortoiseshell comb glinting in the sunlight, and find tears are forming, for I do not want it to come to me so soon. I catch mother's eye and know her thoughts are like mine. We are remembering the images we saw earlier today. We think of the lives lost, the villages and cities that have been razed to the ground, the world treasures that will never be seen again. I look to mother and father, who, like me, are carrying the mantle of despondency that all adults are sharing on this day. For we have been reminded yet again that grandma's story of ignorance and hatred and hardship and war is not really in the past. It can only be yet another chapter in a story that will never end. A thought comes to me learnt at school, a quote from the famous behaviourist B.F. Skinner. We know not yet what man can do to man. Sadly, it is appropriate today and will be for many years to come. But my daughter does not know this. She sits enthralled, face flushed with excitement, cross-legged on the floor with her cousins. Her eyes are glued to the old lady, who is the genesis of her life, as she is mine. And as we hear Grandmama's recount of a childhood in Poland, I think of my mother's account of a Brisbane equally unknown to me, as my Brisbane will be to my daughter. I look out of the window across the water at the monolithic giants feeding on change and wonder what my daughter will see when her eyes are as old as mine or grandma's. And I pray that she will never experience the horrors and grief that we have witnessed yet again today or indeed occasioned the need for the special reconstructing of Grandma Kyra's petticoat. You have been listening to Grandma's Petticoat, a story written and performed by Brianda Cross. You will find other stories in different genres on fastfictionpodcasts.com or on your favourite platform. And if you enjoy them, please give us a nice review to encourage us to present more. Thank you.